And if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back uh, in front of you or around you. Uh, We're going to continue on in Psalm 137. We're going through Psalms 135 to 150. And this morning, I was down here uh, about six this morning, just going through the notes and and trying to make it comfortable in here for us. And and I, I was just reminded that God is in control. Your pastor is not this smart. Because in the spring, we were looking at the letter to the church at Philippi, thinking about joy. And this fall, we're going to look at the letter to the church at Rome, reminding us who God is. And this summer, we're looking in the Psalms that bridges both together, that we have joy in Jesus, and it's going to show us who God is. I'm not that smart to put that together. On top of what we may feel this morning is exactly the call Psalm 137 has on our lives. And it's just so beautiful to see God and his planning bring all of that together for us today. So I'm excited just to, to kind of dive in and see what we have this morning. Uh, I've probably told this story before, but uh, I know it's a newsflash. I'm not athletic. You can just kind of look at me. I have muscle but it tends to penetrate or kind of gravitate towards this section of my body. For some reason, it can't go up in this section of my body. But I, I, I just, I'm not athletic. I love sports, but I'm not good at it. And that became a problem in high school. Because in my sophomore year of high school, I went to a small Christian school, and, and I was in advanced math. And the only time they could do that advanced math class was when all of my classmates had P.E. Well, whatever, I, I get out of P.E., that, that's fine with me, I, I'm okay, until I get to my senior year of high school. The last year, you're excited, all of the hope, all of the possibilities of what life can bring, except I don't have enough P.E. credits to graduate high school. I don't know how that would cause, or what that would cause in you. That kind of caused a little bit of panic inside of me of of what might happen. And so I began to talk to the principal who's also our athletic director and we're trying to devise a a game plan of like, seriously, I don't want to be a senior in in PE with freshmen. Like that just doesn't go well for me. And so we've devised a plan and here's the plan. We were going to have me play a sport. And so in all of my wisdom, I looked at the three sports we had and I said, well, I don't like running. So soccer in the fall is out. The basketball coach doesn't like my family, so that's out. So I guess I'm left with baseball, a sport I have never played. I tried and somehow broke my thumb bunting. How you do that, I don't know. But that was my goal. Let's just try out for baseball. Most years it didn't matter. They kind of accepted everybody. But this year they decided to have cuts. And so I went out for every practice. I tried my best, but, I mean, I'm just not good. And so that fateful day came when the coach, one by one, had every player come into his classroom and, and just kind of say, here's your role on the team. And I, I got called in, and I remember him starting to say, man, I really love your effort. You've had a good attitude. And I'm thinking, you're buttering me up for something. And then it came. But we're going to cut you. We've got some freshmen that we want to develop, and you're a senior, and we're just going to cut you. And in that moment, 
not only was it embarrassing, but now my future just kind of hung in the balance. I remember over the next week just wondering, like, what, what was going to happen? What, what was I going to do? And the uh, principal, athletic director, called me into his office and said, hey, we, we devised a plan. We, we've got this figured out. We're going to have you be on the team as, like, the equipment manager, bookkeeper, that guy. You're going to go to the games. You're going to go to practices. By the end of the season, that will count, and you'll be able to graduate, and everything's done. I remember getting to the end of the season and my coach is coming to me and saying, hey, we want to take you out for lunch. And, and they took me out to In-N-Out Burger. If you've ever been to California, that's the place you go. But they took me to In-N-Out Burger and they're sitting me down and they said, hey, uh, we just want to tell you, you had a wonderful attitude this year. Well, honestly, we didn't know how you were going to respond, but you were a trooper. We were excited. And I remember looking at one of my coaches in the face and said, you know what? It was awesome because I knew no matter what, you couldn't bench me. I was already benched. You weren't taking playing time for me. I already wasn't playing. And that gave me so much freedom because I knew my role. Do you hear that, church? Because I knew my role, it gave me freedom and it gave me joy to live and to operate in the midst of of this team. And this morning for us, as we dive into Psalm 137, we need to know our role. We need to know our role. We need to know God's role. And as we rightly order those and rightly remember those, then we can be able to have joy, even joy in the midst of trial. In fact, the psalmist is going to tell us that true joy in the midst of trial comes when we rightly remember. (laughs) When we rightly remember our role and stop trying to be who we aren't, stop running from our role, but just embrace it, there's a path to joy. And this morning, this path is going to be a bit difficult because it's going to take us through three stages. And if we stop at one... The train will never reach joy in Jesus. So we've got to go through all three stations. And so with that, let's go ahead and read Psalm 137. And as we always do, we stand because we believe that this is God's word. You need to hear from God. And so would you stand with me as we read Psalm 137 this morning. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing in the Lord's how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, 
Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So I've just got to say on the outset, this morning is just, like I said before, is just going to, I think, have a, a range of emotion. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible is just honest about those range of emotions. So often we think that the Bible is a dated book that has nothing to do with our lives today. And yet so often, especially when we read the Psalms, we can see the full array of emotions that we feel in a given day, a given week, or a given month. And we see it here, don't we? We see a sense of hopelessness. We see a sense of hope in Jesus. And then we see what seems kind of despicable at the end, almost horrific. And we want to be able to, to look at this and really understand this, because if we're honest, it would be so easy for us to judge them, but if we're honest, we feel these things. We might not say it in the same way, but we feel these things. And so we want to understand this so that we can carve, by God's power, carve a path to joy. As we carve that path to joy, we need to get a background understanding to what the psalmist is talking about. And we see just in verse 1 that the psalmist is talking about Babylon. So uh, rewind, if you will, in the story all the way to the beginning of the Bible. And what you will see is Genesis chapter 1, that God created everything for his good and for his glory... And out of that, he made man and woman in his image to be walking billboards to the world around. So our role, if you will, is to be walking billboards advertising how good and great Jesus Christ actually is. The problem is that we want to be a walking billboard for ourselves. We want to walk around, and now we have devices, now we have apps that kind of help us do this, but we want to be walking billboards of ourselves. To the point that you get to Genesis chapter 11 and we see all the people of the world gathering together trying to build this massive tower where the world around them looks and praises them and God just looks down and says, that's cute, but that's not going to work. And he knocks it down, he scrambles their language, he pushes people to the edges of the world. And we see in Genesis 12 that he chooses a man who is a pagan, who wants nothing to do with God. And he chooses that man named Abram, who would become Abraham, and he gives them three promises. And the promises he gives are the promise to make his name great. The promise to give him a massive offspring. And the promise for a land of blessing where his people would worship God forever. 
If you fast forward through the story, what you'll see is that the people of God are in the promised land. They're worshiping the Lord. When their hearts begin to wander from God, their hearts begin to wander away from truths of Scripture and truths of Jesus. And in that, God divides the nation of Israel into two, and he begins to raise up foreign armies to take people away into exile. So he raises up the nation of Assyria and he brings them in and he takes out the Israelites and then he raises up the nation of Babylon and he takes more people out. It would be like China coming in, conquering us and moving us all around the world for their purpose and for their glory. And you, so you could just imagine the strain, you can imagine the stress You can imagine the trial that they're in, the wonder, is God for us? And in the midst of that, the psalmist actually shows us a path to joy. And shows us a path to joy by telling us that we need to remember in three ways. So let's go ahead and look at this. The first way is remembering the past. Church, we have to rightly Remember the past. And that matters. You see, track record is a good indicator of future performance. Kids, if you're looking for someone to marry, singles, if you're looking for someone to marry, look at someone's past track record. Because that's going to tell you about their future. That's why employers always ask for references, right? right? That's why when you sign any loan papers for the house, uh, the bank wants to know your financials. Like, how have you been over the last five to ten years? Track record matters. Our past matters. And some of us, we can't move forward in life because we don't have a right understanding of our past and we don't have a right response to our past. And this morning we are seeing the right response to our past. Look with me at verse 1. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now get this picture in your head. By the waters of Babylon. I I really hate to do this, but I I don't want to use Susquehanna River because... I feel like if you step into that thing, you might get a disease. But where I grew up, I grew up in an area quite like Babylon. If you, Babylon is in, is in Iran in the Middle East. And if you know anything about it, it is a, a highly desert-like climate. Things don't typically grow unless you have water. And where I grew up in California, that's the exact same way. It is a desert land, except the mountains. The mountains receive so much snow that in springtime that snow thaws, fills the rivers, and the valley I grew up in becomes lush, becomes beautiful, becomes bountiful, and you have food on your plate. Just pick up most packages of food, anything that's grown, turn it around, and it comes from Central California. Now imagine, 
a kind of oasis like that where it's a desert and just by rivers coming together, it becomes lush, it becomes beautiful. Those are the kind of places that we pay thousands of dollars to travel to. Those are the places that we want a vacation to because of the beauty. Those are the places that we buy the, the pictures of where we see people sitting down looking at the river. And yet none of us have ever bought in a picture of someone sitting crying by this beautiful river, beautiful lush land and think, that's the kind of picture I want in my house. I want to be reminded every single day where there's beauty, there's crying. Any of you have that picture? Nobody, right? No one would buy that kind of picture. And yet in the midst of blessing, in the midst of bounty, in the midst of beauty, God's people are crying. Why? Because they're not in their homeland. They're not home. They're in Babylon. And notice what they're doing. They're remembering Zion as they're in Babylon. Now, why is that important? Well, Zion is the mountaintop in the city of Jerusalem where the temple was. That is the very place where God would dwell amongst his people, and the people could go and worship God. And so just imagine, you used to have access to God. You could go and worship God. You could go and be with God. And now you've been taken away from that into a foreign land where they're teaching you a brand new language, a brand new culture, and they're giving you new names. Anyone ever read the book of Daniel? Daniel's given a new name in Babylon called Belteshar, and he's got three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are not Jewish names. Those are names to worship Babylonian gods. So their whole identity is now shifted from worshiping their God to worshiping another God that they know is false and untrue, and yet if they don't worship, they may die. And they're in this moment remembering that dichotomy, remembering how they used to worship. And yet, what else are they remembering? The very reason that they are there is because of their sin. They are in exile not because they followed Jesus Christ. They are in exile because they made themselves God. And now the way to be right with God was to go back to the temple and offer a sacrifice and the trail back home has been turned off, has been shut down, barricaded, and they can't even become right with God. And notice their response. They weep over it. I can't help but to wonder if some of us are in exile this morning. Maybe we feel in exile at work. Maybe we feel in exile in our neighborhood. Maybe we feel in exile in our home. We feel shut off from the Lord feel shut off from bounty, shut off from his blessing, shut off from everything that is good and right. And our response is everything 
but weeping. Our response is to scheme and strategize rather than to just bend our knees in sorrow over our sin. And the psalmist is saying, if you feel like you are in exile this morning, if you feel like you are disconnected from the Lord, one of the first places you need to turn is to look at your own life and say, are you in sin? And are you in sorrow over that sin? Because notice what the psalmist does then. In verse 2, he says that he, uh, on the willow trees there, we hung up our lyres. And these are not people that, that don't tell truth and so they hang them like they did hundreds of years ago. These are musical instruments that are, that are stringed that they would use in the worship for God. And notice what they're doing. Instead of taking these instruments and, and, and playing them, I don't even know how you play a lyre. I'm just going to do this. And instead of playing them, For God, they realize that they are in sin, and so they hang up their lyre rather than flippantly praise God. Do you see that? Rather than having this heart that just goes through the motions, they say, we cannot worship God like that, so we're going to hang up our lyre, and we're just going to pause. So often we... We kind of play a game, don't we? We know something's wrong in our life, but we, we don't want anyone else to know. We don't want to deal with it. And so we distract ourselves, or we just kind of go through the motions, check the boxes, so that we feel good about ourselves. And the psalmist is saying, no, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't worship God flippantly. We serve a holy God who is separate from sin. And so we need to take our sin seriously. We need to take worshiping him seriously. And we need to uh, ensure that our hearts are right before him. And so when we have sin, we've got to deal with that. We've got to bring it before the Lord. We've got to do something with it. And we've got to confess it to God, asking for his forgiveness, asking for him to change us, and not just go through the motions, hoping that the motions will somehow conquer our sin. Our motion doesn't conquer our sin. Jesus Christ's motion on the cross conquers our sin. So we need to be careful even in the midst of what we see in verse 3. Look at what we see in verse 3. They're captors. The people suppressing and oppressing them. Look at what they did. They required of them songs. And notice, it's almost as if they're taunting. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now think about this picture. I am in captivity. I am under another nation. I say I worship a God who's over all things, and yet you're in control over me. It's a taunt against the one true God. The captors, the, the culture wants them to just kind of sing and play, play a little dance and sing a little song so that they can be amused and that they can mock God. 
And I wonder how much today our culture is telling us and ravaging the church because they want us to sing a little song and play a little dance and get caught up into their ways. And as a result, we get distracted. We start to wander from God and we don't do what we're called to do, which is serve Jesus Christ and him fully. And so we get caught up in the political wars. To be a Christian, you have to be this political party. No, you don't. To to be a Christian, you have to have this social position. No, to be a Christian, you have to follow Jesus Christ. Love him and love others. And yet the culture just wants us to play a little dance. Get caught up into their wars. Come out on Facebook and, and do their little dance. Because they think if they get us distracted, it will kill the church. I wonder how much that's actually working. But the psalmist this morning is saying, don't buy into that. Don't go after that. Make Jesus center. Make Jesus first. Make Jesus over all things. And we do that by recognizing our own sin and by owning it. We are in a culture in which we have lost all sense of accountability. And I pray for our community often, but one of the things I think is detrimental to our community is a loss of authority, a loss of accountability, and so there is rampant sin. And our way to fix it is not to confess our sin and be right with God, but to strategize to change some policy. Church, we have an opportunity right now to be the people who lead by owning our own sin, by looking at our own lives and saying, where am I in exile? Where do I feel disconnected from the Lord? And is it perhaps because I am not saddened over my own sin? But the beautiful part about the psalmist is that he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. He moves us on. And as he does so, he wants us to remember the presence. That's our second way of remembering, remembering the present. And as we remember the present, look at what the psalmist does. He, he has this tension. Look at verse Four. He says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? He's saying, how can we worship God when we know that the reason we're here is because of ourselves? But notice what he does. He does the oddest thing. Verse 5, he says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Why does that matter? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. The psalmist is saying, I need to remember the city of God. I need to remember everything that is about Jerusalem, everything that is about this city where we worship God, we praise God. I need to remember everything about that city. And if I do, it would be better for my hand to be cut off. It would be better for my hand to no longer do anything if my mind forgets all that the Lord has done. Does that sound familiar, church? 
Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, it's better for you to cut off your hand than for you to use it for sin and end up in hell. It's better for you to gouge out your right eye than to give into sin where you spend eternity in hell. And the psalmist is picking that idea up, actually launching that idea into the New Testament. And it's telling us it's better for us to forget how to do anything. Right hand, place of power. It's where kings would often wield their swords. It would be better for me to be unable, to be powerless, than to forget God and his power. And notice, not to just forget God and his power, but to forget what God has done. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, what is so special about Jerusalem? You see, King David, the mightiest king in the nation of Israel, uh, as he expanded the borders of Israel, he looked upon the cities and he decided, I need a capital and I need a place for God to dwell. And he identified the Jebusite city named Jerusalem. And why that matters is that this is a city that was pagan, a city that wanted nothing to do with God. And David rides in, conquers it. And as he conquers it, he redeems it. He rewrites their history to no longer be associated with evil and Satan, but now to be associated with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they need to remember that is their history. They need to remember that is the redeeming power of God. Church, do you realize the redeeming power of God in your life, and do you regularly remember that? I remember being in college. Actually, I remember a lot of my growing up. I was just like many of you. Went to church Sunday morning, went to church Sunday night. When I was three years old, my behind was in the pew. They had all the kids' programs. My parents said, you're going to be in the pew. When I was four or five, I could rehearse what the pastor would say to my parents. I went to Christian school. I learned all the verses. I went to Awanas. I learned much of the Bible. I could regurgitate story after story after story. And I went off to college having shared the good news of Jesus Christ door to door. And as I got to college, going to church was a checkbox because I didn't love Jesus. I was a moralistic person who was wasting my time because I was getting up on a Sunday to sleep in church. Not because I love Jesus. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God strategically put a man as my roommate named Paul Goober, and time and time and time again, he kept inviting me into a Bible study led by David Jenkins in our apartment, and he kept inviting. I said, no, that's weird. You are, like, I believe the Bible's true. I think I have a relationship with God, but that group is weird. Yeah, time and time, they just kept working on me. Finally, I agreed, and they showed a love that I'd never experienced before. And they put a, they, they, they were reading a book and they said, you need to get this book. Look, I hadn't read a book in like eight or nine years. I hated reading. And I definitely wasn't going to spend money on a book. 
So I remember going on campus in between classes and I would read this book that was for free online called Desiring God. I remember reading a chapter and being like, this is dumb. Your money's about God. I could have written that. This is dumb. Your job is about God. I could have written that. This is dumb. Your life should be about... Come on. Like, really? This is a book that someone makes money off of? Like, everything in your life should be about Jesus Christ. And then it hit. Because your life is not about Jesus, you're missing out on joy. And in that moment, God redeemed me. In that moment, God plucked me up from living for myself. And he gave me a new life. He gave me a life with him. He said, you're right, you knew it up here, but you missed it in here. Church, is that true of you? Do you know it up here, and are you missing it in here? And if you have it in your heart, if you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sin, has risen from the dead, is reigning and ruling, are you regularly remembering and reminding yourself of that past work of God now? And I look back at that, and I'm just in awe that God would rescue me. And the psalmist is saying, man, look at what you did for Jerusalem. To the point that in the next verse, look at what he says. He says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. He has been so impacted by God and the redemption that God gives, the saving work in his life that God gives, that he just says, you have to be above my highest joy. Is Jesus Christ above your highest joy in this life? Whatever it might be, your kids, your Mom, your dad, your spouse, your job, is Jesus above that highest joy? Because the psalmist is saying, that's where true joy begins. Church, we need to remember all that God has done for us. Remember how he has made us new in Christ. And then we need to set him as our highest joy. Because otherwise, all the other world joys, (laughs) the world is telling us a lot of joys. But can anyone really argue that the world is getting better? But there's a lot of joys that they're feeding us. And it feels like we're circling the drain. So joy is only found in Jesus. And in that moment, when we run to him, he calls us his son. He calls us his daughter. He calls us his saint. And he puts us on a different trajectory that that if we've had sorrow over our sin and then we remember the way in which Jesus has saved us, he then goes with us into the future, goes with us in our suffering. He walks with us in times of trial. And that's what the psalmist then wants us to see. The third way, and that third way is remembering the future. Remembering the future. You have to look back sometimes to look forward. And the psalmist reminds us of that. Verse 7, 
The psalmist is in this plight. They're in exile. There's so much oppression, suppression surrounding them all around. And notice what the psalmist says. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. Wait a second. I thought we're in Babylon. Why the Edomites? Well, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 25, you will read in verses, I think, 12 12 to 14, you will see that as the Babylonians came... In encircled Jerusalem, the big bad bully comes to knock out lowly Jerusalem, lowly Judah. The Edomites, like ravaged wolves, come up. They're like, ooh. And notice what they say. They literally say this. Lay it bare. Lay it bare. Down to its foundations. It's as if the Edomites come as cheerleaders for the big bad Babylonians like, ooh, you're going to knock them out. All right, go for it. You got it. Now imagine if that was you. Not only are you in trouble, but there's people cheering your trouble. To make matters worse, do you know who the Edomites are? They're not just any people group. Their ancestor was Esau. You know who your ancestor is? Jacob. They're brothers. So these are your cousins rejoicing, singing, praising at your demise. Man, there's only... There's two great hurts in the world, church hurt and family hurt. I don't know of anything that will, that will top those hurts. And some of us know what family hurt feels like, right? We know what it feels like when our families seemingly turn their back on us. We know what, or what arouses in us and how we want to wage war. We want revenge. We want to get back. We want justice. And we see that, right? I mean, just turn on the TV today. You'll see like 50 options for some show about justice. We want justice. We want blood. And yet so often we try to do it ourselves. But notice what the psalmist does. He goes to God. Romans 12, 9 actually tells us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So often we want to be God. We want to take vengeance upon ourselves. We want to get back. Now, think about that. Think think about the amount of strength you have. And if you were to quantify the vengeance that you can bring, like, you know, you got those sledgehammers at the fair, you hit it, and the bell goes higher, and you try, you know, or or Wayne, I think, had a little grip thing that we're all testing, seeing our strength. Oh, I got 50. Oh, I got 75. Ooh, I got 80. I'm strong. God's got, like, a million. And we're wanting our little 80 to do something. But the psalmist says, no, no, I don't need to trust in my ability. I need to trust in the Lord. The Lord can bring vengeance. The Lord can vindicate me. The Lord can give me a new name. The Lord can save me. The Lord can rescue me. The Lord can give me a new path. I don't need to do it. I need to trust him to do it. So Lord, remember And then notice what he says then. 
He looks then to Babylon and says, may you be doomed. May you be destroyed. May the one who brings destruction be blessed. And we might say, oh, that, that's a little odd for us. Come on, let's be honest. We feel that, right? When those who are against us kind of get what they deserve, we're like, oh. And inside we're like, oh, that's all right, right? The psalmist is just showing those emotions, but not taking the emotion himself, but bringing it to God and saying, you have to be the one in control. And then he says one of the most disturbing things I could have ever have preached on in my entire life. And yet I think it's something that's in all, inside of all of us. Look at what he says in verse 9. He said, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And any of you who were listening may have read that and just felt a little queasy. Like, how is this in the Bible? Really? Take the little ones and dash them to pieces against the rock? Think about it. Think back to 9-11. Whatever you're doing that day, think back to your emotion that day on 9-11. My guess is many of us, our first thought was, let's blow them to pieces. What happens when we do that? Little ones become shrapnel. So we feel that, right? Like, like we don't want this to happen, but yet we want justice. But also think about what the little ones are. You know, Adolf Hitler was an incredibly intelligent man. You know how? Because in 1933, when he took over in Germany, he began to indoctrinate second and third graders because he knew when a war started in a few years, they were soon the generals and lieutenants in his army. And so what the psalmist is saying is, I want the future generals, I want the future lieutenants to be wiped out so this oppression no longer stays. And church, do you realize right now the future generals and lieutenants for the dominion of darkness are being indoctrinated right now in our schools? They're being indoctrinated against the ways of God. They're being indoctrinated to follow the course and the path of the world. And so many of us are just sitting by, wondering why we are in oppression, wondering why the church seemingly is shaking. It's because we are not doing anything to parents, to engage, to get after our kids' hearts, to parent school our kids. I didn't say homeschool. I know some of us can't do that. I'm not advocating. I've never been an advocate for homeschool. But we've got a parent school. We've got to be in our kids' life. We've got to teach them the ways of Jesus. We've got to say, hey, what did your teacher teach you this day? Let me show you. Let's go back to God's word. Let me show you what lines up with truth, what doesn't line up with truth, what doesn't line up with false. Let me train you in the ways of Jesus instead. Are you doing that? Might we be in oppression? Might we be feeling like we are in exile? Might we be feeling like we are suppressed because we are allowing everybody else to indoctrinate our families and we are not stepping up to do that? And that is not shame on dads today. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just trying to open your eyes to say, let's step up, dads. I just read something this week 
Dayton Moore. He was the general manager of the Kansas City Royals. If you know baseball at all, you know the Royals for 25 years were the laughingstock of baseball. I mean, they were the butt of the joke. Dayton Moore became the general manager, and he said, you know what? We don't have the money uh, like the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers have. We don't have money like a big city. We don't have players. We need a new culture. He said, here's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who have respect for authority. We're looking for people who want to follow our way, who want to follow the rules. And guess where he found them? He found them typically in families where dad was present engaging the kids' lives. He literally allowed players to be on his team or not based on whether they had a good relationship with their dad or not. You might think, oh, I can't imagine that. You know what happened? This no-name, no-market team won the World Series in 2015. He was on to something. Dads, you have an enormous role to play. But guess what? It's not on your shoulders. It's on the Heavenly Father empowering you by His Holy Spirit to be in you, to lead you forward. And this morning, we have to remember our role And the way we remember our role is that we have a good father. Today is Happy Father's Day because we have the best father in the world. And we need to remember that father and his tender care, his love towards us. Despite the fact that they are in exile away from God, he still sends his son to die for them. He still sends his son to give his life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son So that no one would perish, but have eternal life in him. We need to sorrow over our sin. That's our role. We need to remember the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we walk forward in a world that Peter tells us we're exiles. If we want to follow Jesus, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're exiles. We're sojourners. This is not my home. Heaven is my home. So I'm going to walk through suffering, but I'm not alone. Remember, O oh Lord, He is with you. The author of Hebrews says He will never leave you, He will never forsake you. Church, what's your role this morning? Are you trying to be a billboard to yourself? Are you trying, when you recognize that there's sin in your life, you're trying to distract your sin, distract yourself, or turn your attention away from just repenting of that and, and turning back to God? Are you flooding your mind with distraction, flooding your mind with all sorts of things out here rather than the things of God? And as you walk forward, are you trying to do it in your own power? Are you trying to be God, or will you let God be God? Just like that day, trying to do the math, 18 years ago, 17 years ago, sitting down in In-N-Out Burger, telling my coach, 
I enjoyed the season because I knew my role. Are you enjoying life because you know your role in Jesus Christ? Or is life chaotic because you're trying to be Jesus when there's only one? And he's better at it than you. Run to him. Trust him. Look to him. He gives life. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning. Oh, Lord, we just ask that we might be a people who are sad over our sin, who are just sorrowful, Lord. That we might recognize our sin and that we might want to live differently, Lord. That we might want to follow you, might want our lives to fully be about you right now, Lord. Help us that as we walk forward, that we would walk forward in your ways. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.